Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. Romans chapter 8, perhaps Paul's most glorious chapter in all of his letters, if not in all of our New Testament. But have you ever noticed that right there in the middle of this chapter on the redemptive work of God in Christ and by the Spirit, there is a section that is rather difficult and it it, it seems a little bit out of place. And it has to do with suffering. The suffering of the sons and daughters of God and then the suffering of anything living any creature, anything within creation, even creation itself. I believe Paul's exposition on suffering, starting here in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 8, is a preemptive strike, a preemptive explanation for those who may interrogate Paul. And perhaps their interrogation is as follows Paul, you say that we have been redeemed. You say that we have peace with God. You say that our sins have been dealt with and that we are now righteous and justified in the eyes of God. Paul, you say we are saved. Paul, you say we are free from the law. You say that we can walk and live in the Spirit. There's no condemnation. You say that the Christian life is incredible, an overcoming life, a life of being more than a conqueror. But Paul, have you noticed that as individuals we suffer? Have you noticed that those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, we suffer for his name? Have you noticed that creation is out of whack, discombobulated? Have you noticed that everything in creation dies and is vain and futile? Paul, how can you reconcile the salvation of God with the suffering that we see in creation. Perhaps Paul is speaking to that skepticism, to that argument, to that interrogation, by ever being the realist. Yes, we are saved. We have the filling of the Spirit. But Paul is quick to say that we have not yet arrived. Even as we are in a process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Even as we, the sons and daughters, are growing from glory to glory to glory, creation also is in a process. And any living creature within this realm called creation is suffering. But there is also a hope within creation to be delivered from its death condition, its decaying condition, even as the sons and daughters are aching and groaning and hoping to be delivered from our body of death. Something really remarkable is going on here in Romans chapter 8. It's as though 
the earth and man have a parallel transformation process it's going through. But even as God is doing a new thing, a restorative work in the spirit, soul, and body of a man, Paul is trying to say to us, creation itself is also going to experience a transformation, a restoration, and a renewal. Before we get into this, I want to read for you from verses 18 and onwards in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our body. In a chapter where Paul speaks almost exclusively regarding us as the believers, he takes a little bit of a rabbit trail and he talks about creation. After all, man came from creation and somehow there's a connection between a man who came from the dirt and the dirt itself. Man fell and so creation fell and creation was cursed to bear thorns and thistles and to be in a state of decay. Man, of course, was driven out of the Edenic garden. And so creation fell, man fell. Man fell from the glory of God. Creation also fell. And there is a parallel as it is with the man, so it is with the dirt whence man came. But Paul is trying to give us the restorative, redemptive perspective here. If we, the men and women of God, the sons and daughters, the creatures of this earth, if we are being restored by God and our eschatology is glory, Paul wants us to know, even so with the earth and every living thing within creation itself. When Paul uses the word creation, I believe he is referring to everything at large that is the visible expression because of God's creative power. 
Not only earth with all of its living entities, but even the heavens itself, the sun, the moon, the stars, the existential universe around this planet called earth. All of God's creative handiwork is in a state of decay, it's in a state of groaning, it's in a state of anxiety. Why? Because Paul says it is subjected to futility. And Paul does a thing here to creation that he does to sin in chapter 7. You may recall in chapter 7 how he personifies sin and gives it anthropomorphisms. That simply means Paul puts human feeling and emotion and human actions onto sin, and he personifies it. Well, he does the same here with creation. And again, I believe he's referring to anything that has visible expression that came about because of God's creative act. And in verse 19, he says that creation is anxiously waiting and watching and anticipating. That is earth with all of its living creatures, perhaps the sun, moon, and stars, everything within the created visible world is currently in a state of anxiety. It's as though Paul is saying to the Christians there in Rome that if we, the sons and daughters of God, can be in a state of anxiety at times, even creation itself is in that current state. Paul also goes on to say that creation was made subject to vanity. It's not quite at its optimum, at its best. It's not quite within the purposes of God. It has been derailed. Man was derailed by sin, and man fell into vanity and purposelessness. Even so, creation mirrors that. Paul goes on to say that creation was subjected against its own will. Again, it's an anthropomorphism giving feeling to creation. In other words, creation became sort of um, just a slave to this fallen Nature, even as a man, became a slave to the fallen nature of Satan. In verse 21, Paul talks about how creation has a hope to be delivered, even as a man has this hope to be freed and delivered from this corruption. Creation mirrors that. And then he goes on to say in verse 22 that creation groans, it is in travail, and it is in pain. I want to bring to your attention two very human, emotional, anticipatory feelings that Paul places upon creation. The first one is in verses 19, where Paul says, Creation eagerly awaits and eagerly anticipates the revealing of the sons of God. By way of metaphor, we can think of a man and a woman that are betrothed to be married one to another and how they wait with longing and expectation and they're looking forward to the coming day when they will cut covenant and they will be fully now married. It's as though Paul puts that anticipation upon creation. And he says to the Roman Christians here, if in the natural you look forward to a kind of a wedding. You look forward to be joined and fully become one with that life mate, that spouse of yours. 
even so with creation. That is, creation is not far from us uh, in our human longing. After all, man comes from the earth. So as a man longs, perhaps even so creation longs. And Paul is saying that creation is looking forward to the wedding day. It's looking forward to the consummation, the day when it will be delivered and absolved from its futility and its vanity and its slavery and its corruption, and it can be at its best. It can serve man who serves God. After all, we say that the heavens serve the earth. Earth serves man, and man is to serve God. But man fell, and so the earth can no longer serve the man in his worship of God. In many ways, the earth actually became a distraction for the worship of God. So man began to worship the creation and not the creator. But Paul is saying, even as a man or a woman looks forward to be united with the one that it loves, earth is looking forward to be in lockstep with the sons and daughters of God. In verses 22, Paul uses another human emotion to say this is really what's going on with creation itself. And here he says, we know that the whole creation groans together and travails in pain together until now. And this is the image here of a woman expecting, a woman that is due to deliver that baby, but she begins to go through a process of birth and travail, and there is pain involved. And Paul takes that human emotion, that human pain and labor, and just clothes it upon creation. Even as a woman looks forward to see that child that's been growing in her womb, it's as though earth is looking forward for the sons and daughters to be revealed in glory. And then right there, Paul in verse 23 says that if creation is longing for the sons of God, if creation is anticipating the birth and the revelation of glory, then all the more we who are the sons of God, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we look forward to this glorification of our body and the completeness of our salvation that began with our birth in God and progressed through our sanctification in God and now consummates in our body this body of humiliation that will be transfigured into a body of dignity and honor and immortality and the very glory of Jesus Christ. We have a man in church history that fits this description of Paul here in Romans 8, 
of creation longing to be one with the sons of God in glory and creation longing to be delivered from its vanity and its uselessness and its derailment. That man in church history is Francis of Assisi. Now, there are a lot of myth and legend surrounding this man, but there are innumerable eyewitness accounts that attest to the fact that this man, in his condition of peace and tranquility, and in the presence of God, and in his calm demeanor, was an attraction to creation. Essentially, animals and birds, wildlife, creation, was not afraid of this man. There was a strange harmony, so goes the accounts, between animal life and Francis of Assisi. There was no fear in them towards this man. Francis of Assisi began to live so in the New Testament realities of a son of God, so in the dynamic of glory, of Christ in him, the Spirit of God in him, the Prince of Peace living in this man, that he was at peace with any and everything about him. In a way, Francis of Assisi began to live in the eschatological dimension of where creation and man is going. Francis, after all, was just a man. But Francis united himself so to the Lord in love and in service to his master. It's as though by faith he was able to take a hold of eschatological realities. That means realities that are yet to come at the end of the age. That is the glorification of a man, uh, the glorification of creation. These types of things are yet to be in the timeline of God's uh, unfolding of his plan and purpose. But Francis, somehow by faith, took those things that were not yet manifested, and it's as though he entered into the reality thereof. It's as though by faith he made real and tangible things that belong to another era, even another dispensation. And I believe this is what Paul is hinting at. There's coming a day when man will be glorified through his resurrection from the dead and he will be like the Lord Jesus Christ. But creation will also be delivered. Creation will also go through a transformative process of glory. I'm not entirely sure what the glorified state of creation will look like, but we know it was prophesied in part in the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Verse 8. The nursing child shall play by the, the den of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hands on the adder's den. In Isaiah there is a prophecy regarding the eschatology of 
the coming heavens and the coming earth. And at that time, the lion and the lamb, the wolf and the lamb, shall lie down. Well, Francis, in a way, entered into that dynamic. And as I understand the stories, and I believe about half of them, you've got to relegate some of it to myth. But I do believe the eyewitness accounts. There were just too many people that said, creation is at peace with this man. Why? Because he's living already in some of the reality that is yet to be. All throughout the Old Testament, there are prophetic references to this coming earth, this coming new heaven. I'm reminded also of uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Behold, I create the new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. In Romans 8, Paul, the Hebrew writer that he was, it's as though he adds his prophecy with that of Isaiah towards this new heaven, this new earth, this new creation coming. There are not many, many references in the New Testament to the new heavens and the new earth. We have some in Peter and we have some, of course, in the book of Revelation. But I believe Paul is acting here as a Hebrew prophet. And the gist of what he is saying is that man who came from earth, if man is to be changed, earth is going to be changed. If man can become a new creation, earth is going to become a new creation. There are prophecies in Peter particularly that deals with this issue of a new heaven and a new earth. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says that we are being brought to an inheritance that is imperishable, an inheritance that is undefiled, an inheritance that is unfading and it's kept in the heavens for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping for us a new creation, an incorruptible, unfading, undefiled, imperishable creation that has glory attached to it. Also in 2 Peter chapter 3, there are numerous references to this doing away of the old creation and this inauguration of a new. Here in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says that the world that was was actually flooded with water and it perished. But the heavens and the earth now, by the same word, have been stored up for fire, being kept unto the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Even as the flood of Noah did away with the old creation of Noah's day and inaugurated a new creation, there is going to come a fiery flood for the current earth and the current heavens. In uh, verses 10 of that same chapter, Peter goes on, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements burning with intense heat will be dissolved, and the earth and the works in it will be burned 
up. Since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what kind of persons ought you to be in a holy manner of life and godliness, expecting and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens, being on fire, will be dissolved, and the elements, burning with intense heat, are to be melted away. But according to his promise we are expecting, this is verse 13, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you expect these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and without blemish. Certainly Francis of Assisi was such a man that began to live in the new creation realities. I want to be that person. I want to begin to live in apocalyptic realities, eschatological realities by faith. I want to take what belongs to the coming age and the coming kingdom. And by faith, I want to enjoy that and also begin to live in it today. However, Peter prophesies that the current state of the earth will be renovated by fire and the elements of earth and life as we know it will be dissolved and there will be a baptism of fire as there was in Noah's day, a baptism of water. Now, a lot of uh, scholars and theologians Um, have debated what does it mean that this earth will be dissolved and renovated and restored by fire. And there are basically two theories I will quickly bring to your attention. Theory number one is that fire will do away with, with any and everything in the cosmos. It will be not only an earthly doing away, but a heavenly doing away where the stars and the moons and the nebulas and the pulsars and, and all of the galaxies and constellations, all of it will be rolled up, if, if, if you will, and be done away with because of fire. I'm not entirely sure what that would look like. Would it be a cataclysmic universal explosion of sorts? Um, how will the judgment of God burn it all? Beloved, I personally have no idea. But that is the thought, is that the judgment of God will baptize the entire universe, the visible realm as we know it, and completely dissolve it and do away with it. There is another theory coming from the text here in 2 Peter, which merely proposes that all of sin will be melt and dissolved and, and, and be done away with. And the example is that of Noah's flood. The water did not do away with the earth. The flood of Noah did away with sin on the earth, and particularly the Nephilim at that time. But the earth still remained. It was just under the water. And there is this idea or theory that the earth, as God created it originally, will remain. However, all of sin, all of Creation itself will undergo a prescribed burning, if you will. And perhaps you've seen land and grass that are um, strategically burned, how the one day it looks all charred, and then with the first rain, it sprouts this bright green grass. 
And that's the theory, is that God will do away with sin, God will do away with Satan, God will do away with the world order and, and Babylon as we know it, this world system, and then will come a kind of a new earth, a new resurrection, and a new sprouting. However that takes place, beloved, I am certainly in the guess myself. But here's the point. There is something new coming. Of course, there is no better book in biblical prophecy to expound upon the new heavens and the new earth than the book of Revelation itself. And starting in chapter 21 and chapter 22 of Revelation, we have a vision. That is, we have an unveiling. We, we have a peek into the coming restored heaven and the restored earth. Starting in chapter 21, verses 1. The writer says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea is no more. As you read on in Revelation, you'll see the sun and the moon is no more. Uh, there is no more need for a temple. There is no more curse. God himself is the light. God himself is the glory. God himself is the very element of of the new creation heaven and earth. I certainly do not know what the heavens will look like without a sun and a moon and the stars, but it says there will be no more sun. There will be no more need for a moon. God himself will shine into the new Jerusalem, which is the very bride of God. Paul is writing eschatologically, and he says, that earth, even though it is in a current state of decay and it is missing its best that God intended for it and it is subject to futility and it's in a place of anxiety and waiting and groaning and labor and travail, there is coming a day that just as the sons and daughters of God are delivered from this decaying body of death, Earth will follow in like manner and be delivered. I do want to highlight just one more thing. It says there in Romans 8 that creation is longing to see the sons of God in glory. Creation itself is longing to be clothed in glory. But it's as though creation will be satisfied only when we, the sons and daughters of God, touch down on earth again in our glorified bodies. It's as though ever since the beginning, earth was meant for stunning men and women of God. Earth was meant to be walked about through bodies of glory, men and women of God who live on this earth and express God. And Paul says that creation is anxiously awaiting 
the sons of God to be manifested, to be revealed. And what I gather from that is, just as a man was meant for glory, earth was meant for glory. But how will earth, in a way, experience glory? Earth will experience its purpose when a godly man lives on it and a godly woman walks on it. God made Adam in his image and God clothed that man and woman with authority and dominion and God commissioned them to fill this earth, to subdue it, to rule, to reign and to bear fruit. And God blessed that man and woman. Because of sin, we fell from glory. And the dignity and the honor of God within a man was taken away. And so as a result, earth succumbed to men whose every intention of their heart was evil continuously. And so earth has been groaning. Can there be a godly person that lives upon this dirt? Can there be a godly person that rules and reigns on this earth? And Paul says, earth is still in that condition of waiting. Can there please just be the restored man that's supposed to live upon the dirt? Of course, Paul is personifying. But I think Paul is trying to get our attention. Live the godly life. Live the life of God's image. Live in God's dominion. Live in the fruit-bearing influence that God has destined for His children. Live the Christ-like life. It is not long now in Romans 8 where Paul will speak now and say that we have been even predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Creation is longing for Christians to live upon it. Unfortunately, many of us as Christians, we are longing to leave this earth and to be raptured and even go live on Mars nowadays. But a son of God, a daughter of God, was meant to live upon this earth. And here, every place upon which our feet tread upon, to live out the kingdom of God and to manifest the image of God and the authority and the fruit and the beauty of God. Man has been blessed of God not to be raptured. Man is blessed of God to live upon earth, giving off the aroma, giving off the aromatic aroma and fragrance and beauty of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I admit that I do not fully understand how this earth will be consumed with fire and renovated through fire. I don't understand how the new heavens and the new earth will look and function. At best, I can also imagine and just guess. But while I'm not clear regarding the earth's upcoming glory, I am clear, it's very certain, of what man's destination and man's ultimate purpose is, and it is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Beloved, don't worry so much about how heaven and earth will wrap up, how this era will come to a conclusion, what the consummation of the age will look like. Beloved, don't get caught up in playing the dating game and eschatological conjectures as to when and how and who and what. Those things are 
rather difficult to interpret. They are obscure and they are vague at best. But it is very clear. The purposes God has for a man is to be restored to image, dominion and fruit as it was there in Genesis. This is what God blesses and this is the glory that is being restored upon us. And it's not just the glory that is coming. That glory has already begun with your new birth in God. And as your soul and mind is being transformed, the glory of God is added to you and is lifted up upon your countenance. And God wants us, the godly men and women of glory, to even begin to live on this earth now, as perhaps Francis of Assisi did back in the 12th century. Beloved, there's a calling on your life, and it's to be glorified. And as you are glorified, earth, eschatologically, will follow suit. Earth is suffering. Christians are suffering. But in the end, there will be an harmonious glory shared between Christ, His church, His bride, us, the sons and daughters of God, and a new heavens and a new earth.